Hi everyone, this is Esther Mbavazi, host of the Movule podcast, where we talk about nature, the environment, and climate change. I am a photographer and nature lover from Uganda. This show started through the Apollo Forests, a tree planting project that got me asking questions about nature and our role in the environment. The podcast is named Muvule after a beautiful and majestic indigenous tree species of hardwood, which is sadly being overexploited to rarity. On the show, I'll be chatting with people in the environmental spaces, from activists to storytellers, scientists, farmers, policymakers, among others. Today, we're talking about birds with Kutsanai Kliwayo, an ornithologist and lecturer from Zimbabwe. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Esther. So please tell us, what does an ornithologist do? An ornithologist is someone who studies birds on a wide spectrum. You can choose what you want to specialize on because there are so many things that you can study on birds from how they interact with the environment, their biology, their taxonomy, everything. An ornithologist does that. And when you study about birds and how they interact with the environment, why is that important? Why should we know about birds? Birds normally are referred to as indicator species. They are quick to react to changes in the environment because of their ability to fly. They have a few barriers which allow them to move from one area to another. What keeps them confined to an area is because that area offers necessary resources or a habitat that's conducive for their survival, depending on the species. So if that area where they live is disturbed, they are quick to move and go in search of another area which is good for them in another place. So when we see them moving and not coming back, we become concerned. Or if their numbers go down in that area, we become concerned. And as ornithologists, we go in there and investigate what the problem is. Or when we see them coming, we are also concerned. Where are they coming from? Why are they coming here? Oh, it means our place is good. We are conserving our area in a good way. So we should continue doing that. That's wonderful because people who are non-scientists, when we see birds, we might not see it to that level, but I think it's very important to mm-hmm. learn that. And that's why we're having this podcast, to learn more about <laughs> our environment. Can you please tell us about your journey? What got you into studying birds? What got you interested in birds? To be quite honest with you, Esther, I never liked birds. To me, they were so difficult and such a huge challenge to study because birds are quick. Birds are small. Birds have so many features that you have to see at once and be able to identify. You cannot study something that you cannot name. I know you, you are Esther, that I'm able to talk to. Same happens with birds. I have to know the bird for me to be able to study it. I was such a lazy student. I didn't want things that were difficult. So instead, I always said, I'm doing trees, I'm doing trees, because a tree is always there. It won't go away. Even if I come back after three days or find it then, I can take my time looking at the tree and get to know it. But trees on their own are a huge challenge as well. It's so difficult to identify trees. So during my first degree, my bachelor's, I was doing trees. 
I even got attachment in a company called Forestry Commission, which is the biggest um, forest and timber company in Zimbabwe. I was telling myself, yeah, I'm so passionate about trees. And I was good at the scientific names and my identification of trees got even better. And I did that because the lecturer was a lady and I liked it and she was so calm and humble. And when she talked about all these scientific names, you know, Terocapas angolensis, I was like, oh my God, I also want to do that later. So she inspired me to do trees. But then there was a professor again, Professor Mandy, he's late now, who always used to go like, you should come study, bruh. And I always go like, no, 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 prophet, I don't want to do it. And you know, him being white and me being black, I was like, this professor is looking down upon me. He thinks I can't do trees and wants me to do his birds because he's into birds. And for so many years, I was rebellious. Since I was part one for four years, he kept on going, come and study birds, come do birds, you'll be so great. I was like, no, I don't like birds. But at the back of my mind, I knew it's because they are difficult and I will never be able to do it. I just didn't want to. So I graduated. I volunteered at the museum, Natural History Museum in Zimbabwe. And it's the same prof who told me to go and volunteer <laughs> at the department that deals, deals with birds, the ornithology. But at that time, I was down at school and I was not working. He volunteered there for a month. Oh my God, I got so hooked. <laughs> because those guys allowed us to work with the collection. And the museum has the biggest collection of birds in the Southern Hemisphere, across even in South America and Australia, we wow. have the biggest thing. I was so fascinated. I got engrossed because they allowed us to put on all the protective clothing and touch the birds and work with them, study, read a lot, and see how museum specimens were preserved. I got to see birds at a different perspective. And I was like, oh, I like this thing. This is so interesting. I'd forgotten all about trees, you know, like in that one month, I forgot about trees. I was all about birds. And when I'm walking around, I'll be looking at them, trying to identify. And fast forward a few months, a post came out. They were looking for a curator in that department. Again, Prof called and said, Kuzi, do you want to try for this? Just go leave your, your CV, you know, you never know. I'm not saying you'll get the job, but just try. So I did, I was called for interviews. I aced the interview because I knew a lot in that one month. I learned a lot about what was going in there. And after volunteering, I had some ideas of things that I wanted to do to improve the department. So they were impressed that I really took the time to think about all these things and I wanted to help the museum. And I've been working there for the past seven years in that department before I moved on to lecturing. And I never looked back. A year later, after I got the job, Prof said, why don't you try and go for this training in America under the organization called Top Mountain Century? My professor specialized in vultures. He was the vulture guru. He was known like international. I was like, no, Prof, here you go again. You want me to do your vultures? I don't like vultures. I'm doing water beds. Even for my master's, I did water beds. <laughs> I was so rebellious. I finally took on the training, you know, since I was patron. So it took me like six years to listen to him and go like, okay, I'll give it a try. And then I went for the training. Oh my God. I got there and all the work they were doing with vultures. And I've been so in love with vultures since then. When I saw the work they were doing, I was like, oh, back home, we need to do that. Our vultures are so in trouble, but a few people are working with vultures. Let me go back home and try and help the vultures. And that's what pushed me to do a PhD in vultures. I've been, since then, I'm just a vulture person. <laughs> I don't want to hear anyone telling me about trees. Trees are equally important. In my work, I can't talk about birds and not talk about trees because they are the habitat. So we study trees as well. But yeah, birds are my thing now. What a journey, running away <laughs> from something that you're meant to do, right? It took me six years. 
So for someone like me who doesn't really know much about birds, can you please paint a picture? What what is a voucher? What what does it look like? What have you learned from the years you've spent studying vouchers now? What have you learned about them and how can we as people start identifying birds and learning more about them? Vouchers are the most magnificent birds. Most people like charismatic birds like eagles because they've been given so much voice. They've been painted as a charismatic species. But vultures are equally as beautiful as eagles. For starters, vultures clean our environment. When you just look at them, just look at the vulture. It's so beautiful. They've got such magnificent wingspans, like a leopard vulture. When it opens, its wings could be three meters across. That is so beautiful. I cannot explain the experience that you get if a vulture just flies above you. And they fly so gracefully. They are the most quiet and non-aggressive species. I mean, for a big bird like that, you would expect it to be aggressive, but they are not. They are not aggressive birds. Rarely do they attack people. Rarely do they attack animals because they are not active hunters themselves. They might hunt sometimes, but they are just scavengers. They are so quiet. They don't give out calls. Uh, maybe they might give a few grunts, you know, like a quiet inward sound may come out. But it won't be loud. So most people have never heard the sound of a vulture. And when you see them feeding, they can finish a carcass in a few minutes. <laughs> that that is so so beautiful about vultures. I just I just love them. Yeah, I can hear it. I can <laughs> feel it. You have so much passion for these birds, and you've spent your time studying them, and that's very important. So in your studies, what have you found to be the challenges that these birds are facing in our environment? You know, long back, I also work with communities in this work. So I used to ask them what they think about vultures, what are their perceptions. Usually I used to think communities don't like vultures. They only want to hunt and kill them. But after I talked to these people, I found a different perspective. They said, we want the vultures. When you talk to the elderly people, they tell you when we were growing up, we used to see them and never even cared about them or even think about them. But now that you have come here and you've told us the importance of these birds as being the nature's cleanup crew, we want them back. We really want them back. And we're willing to work with people like you to try and bring back the populations. But the biggest threats that the vultures are facing is loss of habitat and loss of nest sites. Most vultures prefer very tall or large trees. And we're losing those trees because people target them for firewood. Um, in our rural areas, being communal farmers, we clear lands for farming. And as we have more children and more generations come, we'll give them land to farm around our big homestead. So we are cutting down a lot of trees and clearing the areas. And this is a big problem because what happens to you if you lose your house? Where are you going to sleep? Where are you going to have your children? And for nesting, those big trees are very, very important to vultures. And there are some species of vultures which are very sensitive to disturbance. Lapid face, for example. It might be one of the largest vultures, but it is such a shy, shy species. It won't nest where it does not feel safe, especially in an area where people keep working or where livestock keeps passing through. It will leave, even if it had laid its eggs it will neglect to abandon those eggs and look for another area. 
So vulture species in Zimbabwe are mostly confined to protected areas. But in the protected areas, they also have challenges there. Poachers come in, they kill an elephant or a rhino. They can kill it either by poisoning it directly or they can shoot it down and poison the carcass. They do this because they want to kill the vultures which will come and feed on the carcass. Rangers use vultures in their work. Once they see vultures settling, they want to go and investigate what's happening there. They know there is a carcass, so they want to go and check if it's animal that was naturally killed or if it's poaching. So now poachers know that vultures give us away. They report us to rangers. So immediately when they kill off the animal, they want to kill the vultures as well so that they won't be seen. And this is the biggest, biggest problem because in one carcass, you can find 200, 300 individuals of birds and they'll all die in that one poisoning incident. Vultures are slow breeders. They have a low turnover rate. They can lay one egg in two years for some species or one egg every year. So if you kill those 300 individuals, where are you going to get the next generation of parents? Who is going to breed for the next generation? It's going to take a long time to recover those ones that we lost. So their populations are going down, they're declining at a faster rate than the replacement rate, and that calls for concern. Wow, this is such important information that everyday people we don't really get to know about who we'll just look at the vouchers and leave it at that. But thank you very much for sharing about that. It's, it gets us thinking. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, what can we as individuals, as communities, nations, and on a global level, what can we do to make sure that species like vouchers and birds in general are protected for future generations? I think most importantly, we should work with our communities. The communities are the people who live near the areas where the vultures are. They'll most probably be the same people who will see the poachers. So if we could devise a system where we could secretly report to the authorities if we see poachers, that could help so that there is a quick response. Secondly, I think we should leave green spaces in our communities. Let's have designated areas for farming and let's leave large tracts of land as well that we leave lying idle, that we conserve, that we keep in their pristine or natural state because these areas also will offer us some other resources like um, mushroom, fruits, honey. We can pick up dry logs for our firewood. They can provide pasture for our livestock to graze. So it won't only be for wildlife, but will also benefit if we leave these small pieces of land which we will conserve. Yeah, indeed. So there's been a lot of talk about bridging the gap between science and the community. Yeah. In your work, how are you approaching that? You mentioned earlier you're working with communities and how are you getting them to understand the science that is behind your research? Actually, the science is coming from the community. <laughs> they are the ones who taught me a lot about vultures. Yes, I did have a little bit of information about vultures, but for people who grew up with them, you tend to see vultures in a different way. And you tend to see the communities from a different angle. They have so much respect for these animals. And they actually do confess that we are not the ones who are poaching. The poachers are coming from a different area or from a different country. And there's nothing we can do because if I talk, they'll definitely kill me. You can imagine someone 
who can kill an elephant, such a big, big animal. What about a person? They won't feel anything. So our communities really, really do want to work with us. And I am so happy that they received me so well and they shared so much information with me. And I do workshops with them. I've done interviews and from these, I get a lot of information. I hear from them what they would want us to do for us to save the vultures. They are the ones who came up with the suggestions of saying, we should start leaving these areas for the birds to come back so that they can nest. And I said, yes, that's a good idea, but we will also get these other benefits as well. So they are excited to try and do that initiative. So if we work with them, I think it will give them a sense of ownership. They will guard their resources jealously. And once they start benefiting from protecting vultures and protecting their environment, they will even do it more aggressively and be more alert all the time. They will even come up with suggestion of doing the patrols themselves. We won't need rangers from the park to do that. So I think if we include our communities right from the planning stage, things will go better. Rather than for me to come at the end of the project and I'm saying, you people should not cut down trees because you're killing vulture habitats. No, but because I started with them from the beginning, they are willing now to, to continue and they are seeing conservation from a different light because they're like, oh, we can do this ourselves. We don't have to go to school to learn this. These are things that we know ourselves. So I'm hoping that I will be able to continue with this project. Mm -hmm. I'm working on something new for this year or next year, to give these communities empowerment towards protecting the environment. Yeah, and that's very important because in, in the end, they are the original keepers of the land, of the yes, natural resources. Yes. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, one other thing I really wanted us to talk about is, you know, is about representation. For a long, long time, we've known and we've seen that ecology as a science, and actually many sciences, it, it has been dominated by Westerners mm -hmm. working on the continent, you know, studying our natural resources. But we're starting to see a change with more, with more younger people taking up sciences and actually wanting to work on the continent itself. So why is it important to have African ecologists working in their own communities? I think as Africans, we are already 10 steps ahead of the Westerners because we grew up with these resources. Our grandmothers grew up with these resources. They had a relationship with them. So we can tap into that knowledge reservoir that the Western powers do not have. And if we bring those two together, I think we'll be a formidable force, we'll be so powerful and be able to bring other innovative ideas maybe that have not been practiced in the Western parts of the world. So I think we're at an advantageous point because we have the science and then we have the knowledge that our grandmothers and elders have, which should work hand in hand, really. And finally, what advice do you have for younger people? I just want to tell people like me, the younger generation, that these resources are not for anyone. These resources are ours. Let's utilize them. Let's um, use them, but sustainably. Let's explore them. Let's get to know them. Let's not leave things and say they are for tourists, they are for white people. No, these are our things. These are our resources. Let's engage. Let's be there. You know, let's enjoy our our inheritance. What a powerful way to end <laughs> this conversation. Thank you very much for coming to speak with me and uh, making the time and 
also sharing such insightful information that I feel even the audience will really enjoy listening to because every single day there's so much in the environment happening that we don't know about and it's really helpful mm -hmm. to learn about something new and see how we can take part in bettering our environment. So thank you very much. Thank Good you tonight. so much, Esther, for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on this journey of the Movele podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share this show. Also, please follow us at Movele Podcast on social media. Thank you.